Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old-time movie about a ghost from a wishing well. In a castle dark or a fortress strong with chains upon my feet, you know that ghost is me. And I will never be set free as long as I'm a ghost that you can't see. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the work of Gordon Lightfoot, song by song, brought to you by the Western Skies Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan, Michael Howitt from Markham, Ontario. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm really looking forward to this. All right. Let's get into the basics right away. How did you first get into Gordon Lightfoot's music? Uh, it, was, it was actually my father that introduced me to Gordon Lightfoot. He had a, an 8-track player in his car. And if you don't know what an 8-track is for the younger listeners, you just Google it. But uh, <laughs> uh, So he had uh, a few 8-tracks, but the one I, I really started listening to was, uh, did she mention my name? So this would have been, been around 1968 or 69. And used to listen to it in the car when he was driving. And then I would sit in the driveway pretending I was driving and I would play the 8-track and got to memorize all the songs. So I'd sing along. I got to memorize all the words. And it, it was just the music was so great. His voice was so amazing. And it wasn't really folk music. It had more of a pop tinge to it. But you know, it, it made me want to hear more of him and learn how to try to sing and play the guitar myself. Well, once you get a taste of his music, it is very hard to get it out of your heart. That's true. And I, I agree sure. with you. I mean, he had the same kind of influence on me wanting to sing and play guitar together. What do you like about Gordon's music in general? Uh, well, I guess, first of all, it's, it's, it's the songs. Like the, He's such an amazing songwriter. Like He can take you on journeys with those songs, and then he can touch your heart. And I've heard Bob Dylan saying that and I'm quoting in here, I can't think of any Gordon Lightfoot song that I don't like. Every time I hear a song of his, it's like I wish it would last forever. Yeah. And it, it, in my opinion, there's only a handful of songwriters that can touch his songwriting ability. But I think what sets him apart, like from maybe from the Neil Youngs or the uh, Bob Dylans or the Leonard Cohens, is that that voice of his, that he's got such an amazing voice. And the way that voice would mesh with the lyrics and and the melodies that I just don't think there's any contemporary that can touch him as far as a combination of lyrical ability, melody writing, and uh, and just that voice the way he sings those songs. Yeah, his vocal chops are, I mean, you mentioned Cohen and Dylan and Neil Young, and they all have very evocative voices, but just for pure musicality, I would take, you know, Gordon's voice 
far and away over any one of them, just because it is so deep and so profound. Yeah. Um, now, how many times have you seen Gordon live and what to you was the most outstanding performance that he gave that you've seen? I don't really have an account, but uh, I remember going in the, in the 70s with my parents, they would take me uh, to go see him, but it's got to be at least a dozen. And then you've had a couple of experiences meeting Gordon, haven't you, Michael? Yeah, so um, it was in the mid-90s, actually 1995, where uh, he had a, uh, an autographed session at Sam the Record Man. And Sam the Record Man is this iconic uh, record store in downtown Toronto. It's long gone now, but Sam Snyder was the owner, and he was an early supporter of Gordon Lightfoot and kind of uh, supported him through his careers. So Gordon had an autographed session at uh, Sam the Record Man, and so I took a half day off work, and I went down, and I stood in line with a bunch of other people, probably stood in line for about half an hour. And some people brought album covers. I actually brought the sheet music from Sundown with me. And uh, while we were in line, I noticed there was uh, some gentlemen that were kind of just standing off the side of the line, and I recognized them as his bandmates. So I, I'd seen Rick Haynes, I'd seen Mike Heffernan, I'd seen uh, Terry Clements. And uh, so I went. And I got their autographs on the sheet music as I waited to go see uh, Gordon. And then, uh, so I got up to the table where Gordon was signing the autographs. And uh, so he kind of, I put the sheet music in front of him and he kind of looked at me and smiled. And he, I guess it was something different. Nobody else had sheet music with him. So he, he kind of looked at me and smiled and said, oh, so do you know how to play this? And I, I can't remember what I muttered. I, I probably said, yes, I know how to play it. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. So he, he was such a gentleman. He, he seemed generally flattered and so uh, so that was a great experience. And then uh, I, I guess just to go along with that, the one bandmate that wasn't there was Barry Keen, the drummer. So uh, it was three summers ago, my, my son-in-law was playing uh, a, in a baseball charity tournament up here in Markham. And then he, he called me and he said, Dad, you'll never guess, our third base coach, he said he's a drummer for Gordon Lightfoot. And I said, well, is, is his name Barry Keen? He said, yeah, that, that's him. I said, well, can I come and meet him? He said, sure, I'll see if he can hang around after the game. So I had the sheet music in a frame on my wall and hurriedly took the sheet music out of the frame, got my car, whipped over to the baseball diamond. And uh, it was the game was over, but Barry was still hanging around. And my, my son-in-law said, you know, he brought me over to Barry, said, uh, got a fan here I'd like to introduce you to. So uh, Barry talked to me for a while and then I had the sheet music. And I said, well, here's a story. I got all the bandmates to sign photograph the sheet music, but you weren't there. So can you sign it now for me? And uh, so he did. So my uh, autograph uh, sheet music is complete. That is and, fantastic. And I mean, it's yeah. just amazing that you had nearly the whole band at that one yeah. record store. I mean, at the same time, and because you don't really think of the band coming along with the artist, unless it's a band that's known as a band and not just a backup group. Exactly. It was like a family and, and all the band members were just so nice and humble, like just it just a great experience. And uh, Pee Wee Charles wasn't in the band at the time, but he, he left uh, in the late 80s. But I've got uh, got them all. I've got them up on my wall here. So that's <laughs> so amazing. Happy about that. Yeah, definitely get a picture of that and put it on the Facebook group if you haven't already done so. Yeah, I should. Let's get to if you can read my mind, which to me is like the quintessential Lightfoot song, far more than anything else that I've heard that he has written. It's to me, it's just his most perfect song. I mean, it's personal, it's simple, and it has enough musical variety so that it's interesting 
but it's not so long as to have the listener think, okay, you know, just get on with it, get on with it, get on with it. What about you? Why do you like this song in particular? Uh, well, I guess uh, I'll go back to, uh, it must have been around 1970 when I first heard it. And it's, it's kind of one of those things that in the past, you kind of remember where you were when something, some event happened. And I can still remember clear as day it was grade seven. It was an English class, an English teacher. Uh, I guess for a change, you brought out a couple of records and one of these old uh, rickety phonographs. And so he put on a couple of songs. One was Teach Your Children by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I thought that's a great song. But then he put this song on and I can still remember he didn't introduce it. He didn't say who it was. He just started playing it. And the start of the song, just the, the two acoustic guitars, Gordon's and Red Shays, and then uh, the bass comes in like a boom, 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 boom. And uh, like it, it just sounded so beautiful. And then when that vocal started, it kind of dawned on me. I, I, I thought, I know that vocal. That's the, did she mention my name guy? Listen to the A-track. And yeah, it was Gordon Lightfoot. So I, I still remember it clear as day. And uh, I didn't really have an appreciation of lyrics back then. But as I've gotten older, I've got to appreciate the lyrics more. I just got to love the song more and more. And uh, I probably listened to it hundreds of times, but I still feel the vulnerability and emotion in his vocal. And it's to this day, it's still my favorite song by any artist. Yeah, the tenderness in his voice. Um, and as I said, his voice is beautiful to begin with, but just the amount of tenderness that there is in the vocal to that particular song just right. continually blows me away. What to you is the best setting for you to listen to this? You said you've listened to it, you know, over and over again, as have I. Yeah. For me, I would always want to listen to it at night. Um, you know, after the sun has gone down, maybe looking out the window or looking at the stars, it just seems like to me, and I would want to be at home. I wouldn't want to be on the road. I wouldn't want to be driving anything like that. The perfect setting for me for this song is to be sitting at home at night, whether or not there's yeah. anybody else around. What about you, Michael? When I was younger, um, I had a room in the basement and that was kind of my room where I had a TV set up. I had a stereo and, and a couch and so I always found the best way to, to listen to Gordon's songs was just to turn down the lights, put on the, the record and, and, and just close my eyes and listen to it. And, and that album, that Sit Down Young Stranger album, is such a great album. Um, I had other albums and maybe if you're lucky, you've got three songs which you really like and the rest are kind of throwaways. But Gordon's albums, all the songs were great. And there's another song on that and on the album called um, Minstrel of the Dawn, where one of the lyrics is, listen to the pictures flow across the room and to your mind they go. So to me, that just sums it up. You just closed your eyes and uh, listen and just get absorbed by the song. That, that's how I like to listen to that song, if you read my mind. And you mentioned The Minstrel of the Dawn, and I would love to do a yeah. program on that sometime because I've got my own stories about that one. So maybe I'll have you back on the show so that you- Yeah, it's a beautiful song. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how the song got started. From what I'm led to believe, it was written all in one afternoon. Lightfoot had just gotten his contract with Warner Brothers, uh, and he had bought a house uh, in Toronto. And he was going to the house, which had almost no furnishings in it. He was going there every day for a month just to write songs um, to get ready for this album. 
The song right. is about his first marriage. I think he and Britta, his first wife, were separated at the time. And he said, and I'm quoting, I think it's Nicholas Jennings book. No matter how it stung, I had to keep on writing tunes. I had a band and a recording contract, so I pressed on. It's about peace through acceptance. It stood the test of time about 30 years, and I never get tired of doing it. There are about nine tunes I play every concert, and this is one of them. Wow. Right, I mean, right. yeah. What, what an amazing setting to write a song. I know. But, well, I think he's written other albums where I, I, I remember he talked about renting a farmhouse north of Toronto to write one of his albums. Yeah, so it seemed like he liked to uh, just sit in a, in a room, just his chair and his table and I guess a guitar pen and paper and he would write down all his own uh, like music charts and things and uh, yeah it's you think the songs he's written just so amazing the process and the fact that he wrote it in one afternoon it just boggles the mind yeah just amazing yeah and it says a great deal about a man who not only has the talent but knows what circumstances work best for him as a songwriter Um, very disciplined yeah yeah, very, very disciplined. And just the fact that he writes his own lead sheets. I mean, I don't think there's yeah. one songwriter in 10,000 these days who does that. No, no, it's just, uh, I guess that's his training at uh, when he went to Westlake. But yeah, just just amazing the discipline to do that, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I knew that he had some piano theory, you know, from the very beginning, but the, you know, just the fact that he can write it out, I mean, God bless him, because I certainly couldn't do yeah. that when I was writing songs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's take a look at the lyrics. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. And it seems like he's feeling like he can't put his thoughts into words about the relationship. So he's just kind of wishing that Britta or whomever, I guess it would be Britta, could read his mind so that everything that was on his mind and his heart, he wouldn't have to bother with words. She'd just know. And that dilemma that you have when you have so many feelings and you just can't get them on paper or get them into uh words coming out of your mouth yeah just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well now michael i've looked around imdb and other places and i can't find any movies about ghosts in wishing wells do you know of that or do you think this is just artistic license no i i, I don't either uh maybe it was an old movie seen somewhere but not that i'm aware of but yeah so i think he's just painting a picture and uh, kind of saying that you know, she no longer sees him maybe the way that she used to, like he's a ghost. And he talks about a wishing well, so maybe it's like for throwing a coin down a wishing well and, and, and wishing, so maybe he's wishing it hadn't come to this, or something like that, yeah. Yeah, I like that idea of, you know, wishing that we weren't separated, you know, that we were still together, yeah. all of that. Yeah, I had that hadn't occurred to me. We'll be back to our conversation with Michael Howitt about If You Could Read My Mind in just a moment. But first, here's a word from one of our podcast partners. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk Podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music, that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick. 
every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org. In a castle dark or a fortress strong with chains upon my feet, and I wonder the chains, does that mean that he's chained by his inability to express himself or does he feel chained to the relationship with Britta and wish that it were over somehow? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the great thing about Lightfoot songs is that lyrics can mean different things to different people. And sure. yeah, uh, just like you said, or, or he feels trapped in relationship or on the other hand, he may feel a bit burdened by guilt over how things have turned out. So now we return to this idea of the ghost, okay? And a ghost by its nature is a spirit that rises from the dead. And it's usually, although not always, it's usually invisible. And I think about, you know, this dark castle, kind of a horror movie setting here, a strong fortress. And I think he's imprisoned inside a place that can't be penetrated and she can't see him. You think I'm on the right track there? Yeah, I think so. Um, yes, he, he no longer feels a part of her life or she doesn't see him. They, they're not seeing each other maybe the way they used to, but yeah. So she can't see him. I mean, literally she can't see him because they're not in, you know, not in the same place at the same time. Um, and I will never be set free as long as I'm a ghost that you can't see. And I think she can't see where he stands in terms of the relationship or how he feels about her. And perhaps she is choosing not to see, like, you know, he's saying, you can't see me. And what he really means to see is you're choosing not to see me. Yeah. It's, it just seems like a breakdown of, of communication. They're just not in the same track anymore. And yeah, she just can't understand him or seeing the way she used to. I think you're right. In the second verse, if I could read your mind, love, what a tale your thoughts could tell. So he wishes he could know what she's thinking. He certainly knows how she's behaving in the sense that she's not behaving around him. She's choosing to behave or be away from him. But he wants the same thing that he's wishing that she had, you know, just that kind of omniscience or being able to to uh, read things. Just like a paperback novel, the kind the drugstores sell. And I mean, I've not, I don't read novels that you would find in drugstores, but I'm wondering, is, is he saying here that she wants a knight in shining armor or some sort of storybook lover? Is that what he's trying to say? Uh, I think so. I, I, I can't speak for, for the U.S., but I know up here in Canada that we had these Harlequin romance novels that were in the drugstores. You know, the, uh, the romantic tales, a bit of a fantasy, uh, just to escape from everything and you're hoping that you do find your knight in shining armor and you live happily ever after type thing. So, yeah, I think that maybe they were living in a fantasy world or, or hoping that it would turn out right, but uh, but it didn't end up, end up that way. Yeah, so fantasies, and we're going to come back to the same, yeah. you know, fantasy versus reality. Yeah, the yeah. the Rome, the paperback romance, Harlequin silhouette romance novels that you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know if they're exclusive to drugstores, but they are what some of my female friends call bodice rippers. I mean, that you have, you know, the, the picture on the cover and it's yeah. total escapist stuff, you know, and it's probably got more of a female audience. 
um, you know, yeah. than a male readership. But anyway, when you reach the part where the heartaches come, the hero would be me, but heroes often fail. And that's that little bit of reality that you were talking about, that he's bringing it down to, okay, heroes in the books don't fail. But in yeah. in reality, okay, they do fail. And it seems like he's taking some sort of responsibility for the breaks in the marriage. And we know that later on, he does take responsibility for that. And had he kind of started to come to grips with that in his public statements that he was to blame? Or are you aware of what he was actually saying in the press about the breakup of his marriage? Well, I think at that time it was, I guess there were infidelities. And um, I know back then it, it, Gordon was a very private person. And it seems over the years he's opened up a lot. Like it's that, if you read my mind documentary that was, that was out a couple of years ago, it, it just seems he's opened up so much. But back then he was such a very private person. And, you know, there wasn't much in the press here at that time. He was, he was very guarded, very private. But uh, it almost seemed like this was his way of, writing a song and maybe coming out a bit. But yeah, at the time, I don't know if there's anything in the, in the public realm about that, that I remember anyways. Yeah, and it was a time when there wasn't the same kind of taste in the press for the sort of salacious details that we're going to get later exactly. on, you know, in, in later years. And you won't read that book again because the ending is just too hard to take. And she won't come back to him because it's too painful and she already knows what's going to happen if she gives the relationship another try maybe by this time she had tried and it still wasn't working so that the separation was the only thing that was possible yeah. so you think i'm on track there uh yeah i definitely think so i think it, was, it seemed like it was a bit of a long process that um i don't think finally got divorced in 73 or so but and I guess he wrote this song in July of 69. So it seemed like I'm sure they had a few goes trying to make it work and it just wasn't working. So, yeah, it, it just came to the realization that this is just too hard to take. Yeah, I like the way that you sort of dovetailed into that. Okay. And yeah. then we get into the third verse. I'd walk away like a movie star who gets burned in a three-way script. And I love this part of the lyrics because yeah. he's being romantic. And now he's you know setting himself up as the celebrity that he was mm -hmm. about to become. He hadn't quite made enormous impact on the American market yet, although he'd been, you know, recording in Canada for several years by this time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's the movie star, and maybe he's looking at himself saying, a movie star is too busy, he's too good, he's too above it all to try to talk things out. So he is walking away from the relationship. And I love that image. Did, did that take you aback when you first heard that now all of a sudden he's talking about being a movie star? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's like uh, maybe his pride has hurt a bit. Like he, he's the movie star, but he's, his storyline's been written out of the movies, so maybe his pride's been hurt and it maybe taking uh, the easy way out, walking away rather than trying to work it out. But yeah, it just seemed like there was a little bit of an ego there that like things aren't didn't work out the way I wanted. So um, maybe I'm just going to walk away. Why do you yeah. think he was talking about a three-way script? I mean, is there, do you think he's alluding to this idea that there's another woman in his life or? Uh, it, it, it could be. It, it's, um, 
not really sure what three-way script. Uh, I kind of Googled it and tried to get a, a, a meaning of it. And it's kind of the impression I got was uh, it was a, a storyline and uh, got written out of, the, out of the movie. And there's just uh, less of a role for him to play. So maybe yeah. the, the movie is it's the marriage. There's less of a role that, for him to play. So he's, it's time to walk away. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine like a, a script where you have three stars, you know, and they all get yeah. equal billing? That means that each one of them has less to do because the other two were involved with that. Enter number two, a movie queen to play the scene of bringing all the good things out in me. And the only thing I can think of on that one is that the movie queen is going to be the next woman he's going to give it to, or the number two, which kind of implies that. Britta was number one, you know, and so number two is this unknown, maybe femme fatale that's going to come on the scene. What do you think about that? Yeah, I was kind of saying the same thing that uh, number two would be a substitute. So uh, maybe find uh, another woman who will kind of love him for how he is, understand him more. But yeah, if uh, so, that would be the fallback. Let's find another woman. Yeah. Um, but for now, love, let's be real. And again, you know, bringing back to reality. Okay. I'm not the movie star anymore. Now I'm talking about being reality. And then we come to that great chorus. I never thought I could act this way. And I've got to say that I just don't get it. This is pretty straightforward. I think he's saying to himself, I didn't believe I could ever be as selfish as I've been, as flawed a husband as I've been, those kinds of things. Yeah. I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. And it's interesting to me that he's dwelling on feelings rather than commitment. You know, at some point, I think we realize that love, although it is a feeling, it's really also a decision. It's a commitment. And here, Gordon Lightfoot is at the age of 30 and he's still thinking about its feelings. It's not necessarily a decision. So I said a lot there. Any thoughts on anything I've just said? Yeah, I think I uh, never thought I could act this way. I've got to say, I just don't get it. I guess there's some regret with a tinge of guilt, perhaps, here that, that, that I'm hearing. But, but the, the idea of feelings as opposed to decision, the feelings gone, we know that feelings come and go. Okay, yeah. but that he's not making the decision to stay, but he's saying, okay, well, the feeling's gone, so that means the relationship is gone. I, I just thought yeah. that was interesting. And I think, as I said, we all kind of, as we grow up, I think we realize, okay, feelings come and go, but are we going to stick it out, you know, and make yeah. it work? I just thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then we're back to, if you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well in a castle dark or a fortress strong with chains upon my feet, but stories always end. Okay, And in this case, it's that romantic story that he was talking about in the second verse. And if you read between the lines, you'll know that I'm just trying to understand. This is really brilliant writing because it's another way, if you think about what reading between the lines means, it's another way of saying that he wishes she would get the messages that he's not capable of saying in words as if she was reading his mind. It's almost reading between the lines is almost another way of saying, read my mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's just that the, the communication's broken down. And yeah, if you could just read between the lines, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to understand it. It's a beautiful 
beautiful lyric. The feelings that you lack. And now Gordon sings it in concert as, I'm just trying to understand the feelings that we lack. And he's using the first person plural there. I think his daughter Ingrid went to him at some point and said, you know, mom is not the only one who lacked feelings. Okay. You also, you know, were acting kind of cold or you were, you know, not being, you know, very affectionate or very loving. And so now he uses we instead of that you lack. Yeah. yeah. For me, that's such a, I, I think that's such an important change because, uh, Watching that, if you read my mind documentary, uh, again, going back to how, uh, I guess, Gordon's changed over the years, is I think he acknowledges his past behavior was, you know, a little chauvinistic. And and I remember the documentary, he, he pans a song, That's What You Get For Loving Me, because he, he says, I wrote that when I was married with two kids, and, you know, what a crummy thing to do. Right. And he doesn't play that song anymore in concert. And, and I think that the original line, the feelings that you lack, comes off as very one-sided, that kind of the blame is on her, and how he is kind of taken responsibility for some of his past actions, and, and now seems to be trying to mend bridges or make amends, and it's, to me, that's such a, a big change to the tone of the song. We'll be back to our conversation with Michael Howitt about If You Could Read My Mind in just a moment. But first, stepping away from folk music here for a second. When you're not listening to the music of Gordon Lightfoot, are you a fan of true crime, cults, paranormal experiences, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then take a listen to Sinister Story Hour, a podcast focusing on macabre and monstrous events in the recent past and the not-so-recent. Hostess Stephanie Lynn tells true stories of events that are ghastly, gruesome, but most of all, great fun. That's Sinister Story Hour, available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to Carefree Highway Revisited. And then I never thought I could feel this way. And in the last chorus, it was act this way. I've got to say that I just don't get it. I don't know when we went wrong, but the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. Now, let's shift gears just a little bit, Michael. Did you hear about the problem that Lightfoot had with Whitney Houston and her songwriter in the mid 80s about what might have been a ripoff of If You Could Read My Mind? Yeah, I, I did hear about it, and um, I do know the songs, and I can hear the similarity in two or three of the lines. And I'm going to try try to sing this, so bear with me. Okay. So, and, and the song that Whitney Houston sings, uh, I guess the greatest love of all. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fall, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. And that sounds a lot like, and if you read my mind, and I will never be set free as long as I'm a ghost that you can't see. So those lines are definitely very similar and probably it's the same chord patterns behind them. But the rest of the song, I think both songs is very different. It's only that kind of one piece that's similar. So, so I understand 
Gordon kind of uh, dropped that lawsuit that uh, that he filed and because uh, he didn't want to, uh, I guess, detract impact Whitney Houston herself. And so I'm not sure what the result was. But as far as any lawsuit, it seems there's a lot of songs that borrow off other songs. So I don't know if that lawsuit went through how successful it would be. But I think it was he, he did the right thing by uh, letting it lie. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it was because he realized it was about the songwriter. It wasn't about Whitney Houston herself. Right. So right. yeah. as I understand it, the, the lawsuit was dropped. The songwriter issued an apology. There may have been some sort of cash settlement. I don't know. But okay. it really, after a few weeks, it just you know went away. So yeah. but I, I, I thought that was interesting. And I... Yeah. And it really had nothing to do with Whitney herself, God rest her soul. Um, But it, I thought it was kind of an interesting hiccup, you know, in the whole story of the song, as you said, there is some sort of similarity there. uh, And I can understand why Gordon would see that or hear that similarity, but I think he also made the right decision in just letting it go. So the song originally appeared on the record, sit down young stranger, which I think was released in 1970. And do you know the story, Michael, about how the name of the record got changed as a result of this song? Yeah, so uh, I remember in the, in the same documentary, if you read my mind documentary, where he uh, they released Sit Down Young Stranger, I guess it, it the first album for Warner Brothers. And it, w- it was selling okay, but not as much as they hoped. And uh, then there was a, a DJ in Seattle that, uh, I guess the first single was Me and Bobby McGee, and it uh, didn't really... Uh, tell as much as they thought but um but then a dj in seattle found the uh the cut if you read my mind on the album and started playing it and uh it, it got such a great response that um that the record company decided well let's release that as a second single and by the way let's change the name of the album from sit down young stranger to uh to if you read my mind so when uh when they talked to gordon about that he uh, he said he was so irate that he Jumped on a plane and flew from Toronto to to LA to meet with the uh, the record executives down there, and uh, and he did mention he was a bit of a prima donna at the time. But then when he asked the record company what difference would it make to change the title, that uh, they explained to him, well, algebraically speaking, it's the difference between X and seven X. So basically, if you're going to sell 100,000 copies, if you change the name, you're going to be selling 700,000 copies. So he said he got back in a plane and flew back to Toronto, and five or six weeks later sold 650,000 records. So yeah, it had uh, sold seven times as many uh, records by uh, because of the name change. So he said he kept his mouth shut from then on. So, yeah, I'm sure that he called the producers, you know, when the sales figures started coming in and probably said, hey guys, you know, if you could read my mind's working real good now. Yeah, yeah. Very, very well. Yeah. Sales and charting of this, because it was, of course, as you say, released as a single, Okay, and the the list is just staggering. Number 27 on, the, on Australian KMR, 28 on the Australian Go Set chart, number one on Canadian RPM Top Singles, number one on Canadian RPM Adult Contemporary, 19 on the New Zealand Singles chart, 30 on the UK Signals chart, number one on US Billboard Easy Listening, and number five on US Billboard Hot 100. Woo. I mean, that is yeah. just an amazing list. Any artist would have been glad to have those numbers. And I think it says a lot about the kind of not only the fact that he's working for a really strong label, but also the fact that it's just such a great song. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful song. 
there's a great story about him being nominated for a Grammy in 1972 for the best yeah. male pop vocal performance. And it was for this song. Right. And the show's producer said, okay, well, Lightfoot, you can come, but you can only play for two minutes. And that would have basically cut the song in half. Right. Uh, and so Lightfoot said, forget it. I'm not going to do that. And I wonder yeah. what it would have been like if he'd cut that song down, what the impact would have been. I can't imagine it would have been the same. Can you? No, it's, uh, it would just seem to cut the flow of that. And it just in the first verse is talking about his point of view, the second verse from her point of view. And yeah, if you eliminate that back and forth, I think that it really takes away from the song. So yeah, so I can't fault him for making that decision. It, it just wouldn't be the same song, I don't think. Now, talking about the song uh, on a musical level, I mean, I, you're a, a songwriter and a guitarist and a singer, and I am too. The musical arrangement of it is just, you talked about it a little bit before, but for me, the fact that it's a syncopated arpeggio pattern, the finger picking is, and that's one of the yeah. picking patterns that beginning guitar students learn first so for me, you know, when I started to play, I realized, hey, I can play this song the way that Lightfoot played it. Yeah. Uh, it's a great balance between Red Shea's lead guitar and Rick Haynes's bass. And then the strings, which I think are really tastefully done, um, yeah. probably as good a job with the string arrangements as any Lightfoot song I've ever heard. What to you, Michael, is your favorite musical aspect of the song? Uh, well, this so much with that that yeah the, the finger picking and uh I, I know red shea has said i'm not gordon's lead guitarist i'm there to compliment him to compliment the song and, and the way they play off each other like gordon's playing the the rhythm and the embellishment that red plays it, and, and the tone of the guitars is just so beautiful so it just starts with the two of them and um like that opening riff i think it's like a g chord to a g sus to the you know that heartbeat bass riff from Rick Haynes comes in and, and and then the way the strings build up later on and it's almost like the record of the Evan Fitzgerald it kind of builds up and then once it hits uh, its peak the strings just cut right out and then it just ends with the line um, that that heartfelt lonely lyric that and I just can't get it back and the strings are gone and it's just the you know guitars again and it's just such a great ending so yeah it's, there's just so much emotion in the performance and it just matches Gordon's vocals so well like there, there's some singers that they're great singers but they're almost overpowering singers so you're listening to the vocal as opposed to the song but just Gordon's vocal it, it's it's really all about the song it's a beautiful vocal but it just meshes with the song so perfectly yeah, it was Nick DeCaro who did the string arrangements and he yeah. that whole record and I think he's going to be involved in some other recordings that Gordon would do later on in the 1970s. I know Randy Newman did some also, but I really thought yeah. those were really, really tastefully done. Okay, Michael, yeah, here's the numerical part of our show, which is if you have your notes, then great. If you don't, then I'm just going to ask you to take a shot in the dark here. How many okay. times has Gordon Lightfoot played If You Could Read My Mind in concert? So apparently 913 times in concert. So I guess the first was February of 1971 at Alumni Hall in Providence College, Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm, that's right. And 
the most recent July 22nd, 2021, the surf ballroom in Clear Lake. Yeah, I think that was right before Gordon had to postpone the shows because of the problem he had with his wrist, just because it really is a perennial for him. Yeah, I know he sings this, uh, every single concert we've seen, and we've seen him at Massey Hall is a place we've seen him at. We've seen him at uh, Casino Rambo once, mm-hmm. which is not too far from his hometown of Aurelia, but all the other times are Massey Hall in Toronto. And I guess the story of Massey Hall is he's played there more than anybody else, about 165, more than 165 times. So here in Toronto, they call it the house that Gord built. Uh, and Massey Hall closed down for about three years for renovation. So it, it is so suiting that he was the one that played there last before they closed it down uh, in 2018. And he'll be the first that plays when it reopens in November of this. The other story I remember about uh, that song live now that Barry Keane's with the band is uh, I seen an interview on Canadian television where Barry Keane said that song is one of the greatest songs ever written. And he says at the end of each song, I stand up for my drum kick and I, I give Gordon a standing ovation because it's such a beautiful song. So when I did get to meet him in person to get the, my sheet music autographed, he, he, I asked him about that and he said, yeah, he said, uh, I do that every time. It's such a beautiful song. It's a bit like Jimmy Buffett. I mean, that you know that there are going to be this core of songs and somewhere I saw a list of the ones that Gordon does. I, I don't have it handy, but that's certainly one of them because yeah. it really is so definitive of him as an artist. The song has been recorded hundreds of times. I couldn't believe until I saw the documentary that someone had actually done it as a disco song. Uh, stars I remember that song. And it got to number two on the charts. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I can't literally cannot imagine it. And I listened to it and it actually wasn't too bad. Um, And certainly Gordon wasn't complaining because I'm sure he made a lot of money off of that. But the people who have recorded it, it's almost a who's who. Obviously, I won't read the whole list, but Barbara Streisand, Andy Williams, Herb Alpert, Glenn Campbell, Johnny Cash, Gene Clark, Pet Clark, Jack Jones, Diana Krall, Johnny Mathis, Sarah McLaughlin, Don McLean, Liza Minnelli, Olivia Dutton, John, Don Williams, and Neil Young. And then the one that blew my mind, although this did not get recorded or released, was that Frank Sinatra actually tried to record this. And then at some point he just said, no, it doesn't fit my image or uh, he may have been going through something personal at that time, but I don't know if Frank Sinatra could have done justice to it, honestly. Have you yeah. heard any of the covers of the song? And if so, did any of them hit home or did you enjoy any of them? Well, I, I remember when you mentioned Stars in 54, uh, I think there was a, a theme from a, a movie about that, uh, was a New York disco that uh, Mike Myers starred in. And uh, so I remember that song because it did quite well here in Canada. And and I've heard Gordon say he was flattered that they did it as kind of a modern take on it. Yeah, um, it's it's a catchy tune, but it's kind of like, well, you know, the, the lyrics are so heartfelt and really emotional. And it's kind of like putting your heart in a sleeve and putting a disco beat to it. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't really work to me, but it is a catchy tune, the, 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 their take on it, yeah. I haven't really listened to any other covers. I, I just think Gordon's is so good that anything else can, would, would pale compared to his. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I think of, say, we've talked about Neil Young a little bit, is that when they made Only Love Can Break Your Heart, 
into yeah. a dance beat. Yeah. I happened to be <laughs> at a senior prom when that was being played. And I just thought to myself, this is a sacrilege that <laughs> making this song into this, you know, different thing. And Neil made some money off of it, but I just thought it was a, just a weird thing. Michael, yeah. as we wrap up here, are there any other thoughts about why you believe this has been such a successful song for Gordon and why people who haven't heard it need to take a listen? Um, well, I think it's just um, such a heartfelt song that the, the, it's so awakenly honest and, and the lyrics are so vulnerable. And it's just like Gordon is burying his soul to all of us. And and I think one thing about this song is, even though it's a bit, it's a heartbreaking song, that the fact that he, he uses love throughout it, like if you read my mind, love, that he, he knows the relationship is pretty much over and maybe it's best for them both to move on, but it's, it's hard to walk away and he'll always love her. So even though it's a, it's a breakup song that gives it such a, I think a romantic take and it, it brings some consolation to it. So I think just the combination of the, the vulnerability and, and the beautiful melody, those beautiful lyrics and, and that vocal, it's just, uh, I think it just represented a giant leap in, in Gordon's uh, songwriting ability at that point in his career. Yeah, it's probably, I mean, it's justifiably the reason that he really did transition from being almost exclusively Canadian famous to world famous. And right, right. I think that says a lot about the transition that you were mentioning. Yeah. All right. Well, Michael Howitt, thank you so much for coming on the program with me today. It was a privilege, and I hope to have you back again soon. Well, same here, Mike. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Our next episode will feature my guest, Marty Brandt. He and I will be discussing Gordon Lightfoot's song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old-time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains of- Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.